Normally at this time, I would tell you to open your Bible to a certain passage and stand to your feet as we read that passage. But I felt distinctly led of the Lord today to uh, give you a word of exhortation that is not going to involve uh, teaching through a singular passage. But actually, I want to bring you a message called Right Before Our Eyes. And this passage, or excuse me, this message is going to take us to five different places in the Scripture where five similarly phrased questions are asked. And these questions are asked with the assumption of the answer being somewhat akin to, oh yeah, I should have seen that. So the question comes, and it is really asking the question to draw our attention to the obvious assumed answer. And I think that these five questions that I want to share with you today speak not only to this local assembly and not only to our region where we definitely see a move of the Holy Spirit doing something that I believe will end up being unprecedented as it develops and unfolds, but I actually believe that this is a church, uh, excuse me, a message that needs to penetrate the church in America wherever she gathers and perhaps even beyond the church in America wherever the church is gathered overseas or in different places, I think that we can all benefit from these questions. And so I'm going to begin today with the first of the five questions. It's housed in the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 22 and verse number 7. And all of these will be up on the screen so you can actually give your Bible a rest because before you can turn there, I will have read and answered the question. And here's the first one. A king asked this question. His name was Jehoshaphat. And he asked this. He said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Is there not here a prophet? Is there not here a prophet? And so I want to begin speaking this morning about a voice for our victory. God is a communicating God. God is not tucked away, hibernating in a corner of the celestial city, waiting for time to run its course on earth, and then he will re-engage people. No, God is a communicating God, and has been his, his policy, if I can say it this way, for most of recorded human history to speak to mankind through mankind. And one of the voices that you see in your Bible that he raises up from season to season, generation to generation, is the voice of the prophets. He moves deeply upon some man, at times women, we see that unfold in the New Testament, and he moves upon them, and he stirs within them as he lives within them, and he gives them something to say for his glory. In the time that Jehoshaphat was living, he had come into a situation with the king of Israel, he was the king in the northern tribe, excuse me, southern tribe. He goes up to the king of the northern tribe during that divided state in Israel's history, and they were coming against a common enemy. And so war was about to take place, and as these two kings come together, someone said, I think we need to get God's mind on this impending battle. We need to know if the Lord is for us or if he's against us. And so the backslidden Uh, the, the, the king of the northern tribe says, let me grab one of my court prophets. They were on paid staff. They were paid to say whatever the king wanted to say. So they always had good news. 
So if the king wanted to go to battle, the prophets would come together, all 400 of them, and they would say in unanimous voice, go to battle, God is with you. If the king didn't want to go to battle, they would get together and they would say, don't go to battle, O king, the Lord will not let you go. And so these were false prophets who blessed themselves by saying whatever the king wanted them to say. And so as he's about to get these 400 prophets to come to his side, the king of the southern tribe, Jehoshaphat, says, now, hold on a second. I'm familiar with their prophets. They've got well-coiffed hair. They've got a bright, pretty smile. They meet in arenas. They're beautiful. They're slick. They've got $5,000 suits. They've got a mega ministry. They have books everywhere. I know your prophets. Let me ask you a question, my friend, the king. Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we can talk to right now? Is there not somebody in the land that will give us God's heart? Is there not somebody that will say the tough stuff if necessary? I don't really want to hear from some uh, uh, um, prophets that are, are basically akin to doing whatever you want them to do. I want to know what the God, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have to say. So the question is asked, is there not a prophet? I think that question needs to be asked to our generation today. I don't know if we're still in it. I know that the 80s and the 90s in particular, perhaps before then, was rife with prophets that would say whatever it would take so that they could receive whatever it is they wanted. Uh, We know their ministries well. We know that some of them rose and some of them crashed. We know that some of them were exalted in the eyes of men, only later to be exposed in the eyes of those men for being less than people of integrity. Let me give you a couple of things that you'll hear when you meet a prophet. And by the way, my prayer is that some of you will rise up as one. Some of you won't wait for God to send a prophet, but some of you will get alone with the Lord and tarry there and ask him, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Could I speak for you? Will it be fire in my bones that is shut up to where I can't keep my mouth shut anymore? Let me tell you, the voice of the prophet will typically carry at least these four things. I don't have time to elaborate them, but I just want you to know that this is what we're looking for in our generation. It'll be a protecting voice. A prophet will protect us, a protecting voice. He'll remind us of the dangers out there, or she'll remind us of the dangers out there. That means they're not afraid to talk about the awkward things. They're not afraid to make us uncomfortable. They're not afraid to tell us what we need to hear, even in those times where it's not what we want to hear, but they'll protect us. They won't always wear the rose-colored glasses, but they'll have the clarified glasses that sees things as God sees them, and because of that, they'll protect us and they'll warn us of danger. Not only a protecting voice, a directing voice. The same type of individual, the prophets, will remind us of our dedication. They will remind us that we've committed our lives unto Jesus. They will remind us that we're, as the King James used to say, still says it, a peculiar people. That we're set apart, that we're consecrated, that we've come out of one life and entered into the life, the unique life, the life of Christ. And so they'll direct us on the way. They'll tell us, don't lean under your own understanding. They'll tell us, walk in the narrow paths. They'll tell us that broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in that way. But narrow is the way, and straight is the gate that leads unto life, and there are only a few that find it. And these prophets will have the audacity to rise up when they see us moving in a direction that doesn't cons- isn't consistent with uh, our lives as Christians. And the prophet will say, let me give you some direction here. They'll risk our friendships with them in order to help our souls. So they have a protecting voice and they have a directing voice. They also have, I've alluded to it, a correcting voice. True prophets don't mind reminding us of our depravity. 
Every now and then, listen, this will not go over well with some of you that have been listening to the 400 false prophets of the northern kingdom, but I'm going to say it anyway. Every now and then, somebody just needs to get in our proverbial face and say, hey, sinner, listen up. You say, well, Jeff, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint. Well, you're going to have to explain yourself to Paul because he had been saved a lot longer than you and gone a lot deeper than you, and he raised his hand and said, I'm the chief of sinners. So just because we're saved doesn't mean that we don't need correcting. We don't need an occasional slap on the hand, proverbially speaking. Sometimes we need to be warned. Sometimes we need to have somebody bare their teeth, and they're doing it because they care more about our souls than they do our comfort levels. And I believe in this congregation and those that are listening on live stream and those that will hear it afterwards, you have a call, a mantle on your life to be a prophet of God. And part of that is because you're one of the rare people that is willing to say what others are too uncomfortable to say. Now, it doesn't give you a license to be a jerk, okay? There's nowhere in the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is jerkhood. It's just not in there. But it does mean that at times we'll have to risk even the, the, the likelihood of people wanting to, to, to receive from us. We have to say the tough stuff. Why? Because the prophet's voice is also a connecting voice. I think more than anything, the prophets in the upcoming generation, and I use that term prophet as broadly as I can. I'm not necessarily speaking of the office of a prophet as much as I am the calling and the mantle and and the gifting of a prophet. And that prophet's going to have a connecting voice because I believe most of all the prophets in the generation to come are going to be those that keep us focused on our destiny. They, 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 yes, they remind us of danger. They remind us of our dedication unto Christ. They will occasionally remind us of our depravity and have to tell us that we're sinners that need correcting, but they will ultimately remind us of our destiny. They will keep us focused. They will help us along. They will exhort us and encourage us and motivate us. They will grab us by the nape of the neck sometimes and say, you think you're quitting, but you're not quitting. Get back in the fight. Get off of the sideline. You're filled with the Spirit. You're the tabernacle of God. You are not going to be living your life for the mundane, and they'll remind us of our destiny. You know, one of the things that keeps uh, the afflicted and the oppressed around the world going, I'm talking about our Christian brothers and sisters, is because they constantly encourage each other with prophetic words of hope, speaking as God gives them a, a, a divine communication that comes through a human utterance and it builds up the body of Christ to where they are not left listless and languishing in a very difficult and tumultuous world. So the question is this, is there a voice for our victory? Well, of course there is. There's many voices out there. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little free advice. You're not going to find too many gifted prophets that are doing the kingdom work of God uh, on MSNBC or Fox News or Drudge Report or CNN. And some of you, the reason why you feel so deflated and discouraged, I am messing with you. I'm getting in your business right now. The reason why you're feeling so deflated right now is because you're listening to the 400 prophets of the American media. And you're taking your inner cues from their outer vomiting of nonsense. And you're basing how you feel as a lifted up, raised up child of the king, and you're getting down into the muck with them when all they're doing is comparing, you know, sewage samples with each other. So who's got your ear? And if it's not the right person, hey, you got a mute button, right? Utilize it. Mute buttons are powerful instruments in the hands of discerning people, amen? You've got the right to shut them off, even if it's not on the TV. I got some people who will call me and email me and say stuff to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm being polite. I'm like, but in my mind, I have muted them. I am just straight up not listening. You say, well, Jeff, that's not very pastoral. I'm talking about the prophet, not the pastor, amen? 
So let's get into the second one. This is a little more tender. The first question is, is there not a, here a prophet of the Lord? The second question comes out of Jeremiah 8, 22. It's a hope for our healing. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Jeremiah, it's not a very encouraging book. It's not a real happy book. Jeremiah is about as melancholy as a person can be, but he's also operating under the power of God, and he was raised up as the weeping prophet in a generation that was experiencing the heavy hand of God because of their rebellion against him. And so Jeremiah was the heart, the expression of the heart of God to Israel as they were being, can I say, spanked for their rebellion against God. And by the time you get to chapter number eight, Jeremiah is just pouring out lament after lament and groan after groan. And then he asked this question to a, a, a bunch of people who would have lost expectation of recovery, who would have lost their hope, who would have assumed that the, the doom that was finding them would never relieve and it would always be a part of their lives. And yet Jeremiah, in the midst of the agony, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the national pain of Israel, he asked a question, isn't there a balm in Gilead? Isn't there a physician there? Is there no physician in Gilead? Isn't there a balm there? What is he talking about? We're, we're going far back in time far before modern medicine, far before technology, when the medicinal elements that would help a person would um, often be taken from natural resources and, and from the world of botany, where they would take sap from trees or extract things from plants, and they would go through a very um, primitive process of developing me medicines. And one of the questions that is asked here is, isn't there a balm in Gilead? Gilead would have been known at that time for having certain trees that when the sap was taken out of them and it was manipulated by people that knew what they were doing, there was a proven track record that healings could come from these very primitive medicines. And then the question was asked, is there not a physician? Now, you're going to find more said in the New Testament about the office of a physician or the career or the, the calling of a physician than you would in the Old Testament. It's very rarely mentioned. But the reality is this. Jeremiah looks and he sees a languishing, hurting, broken, dying people. And within him, there is this, there's this subtle outrage. It is, it is, why is this so? Why should they not be healed? Do we not have a remedy? Do we not have an answer? Do we not have a hope? And, and he's looking at a languishing, dying group of people. And he's saying the answer is not far away. It's accessible. It's possible. We don't have to die like this. There's got to be people that can help. We have what we need. But who will apply it? So I extract, or I extract, or I extend, that's the word I'm looking for, that, that question from Jeremiah chapter 8. And I think to our own day, and I think about what we have learned to, to just tolerate in the body of Christ. What, what have we learned to tolerate? We've learned to tolerate living below the line. We, we've learned to manage mediocre faith. We've learned to say amen to biblical principles while we live another week, month, or year without biblical power. We, we've learned to talk about Jesus and dissect theology, but not do the works that he did, which he said we would do. 
We, we've learned how to, how to just traffic and hold on and hold out and cross our fingers and hope for the best. And such a stronghold has bad theology on so many people's minds that, that when somebody is sick, when somebody is afflicted, when somebody is dying, we, we, we approach it and we say, well, I'm going to go through the routine of praying, but we're, we're just going to leave it with God and hope everything turns out. And, and literally, we believe that God is most honored when we operate in hesitant faith and say, you just do whatever he wants to do. Let me just give you something right here. God will always do what he wants to do. God doesn't need our permission. He doesn't need anybody to allow him to do anything. But he has called us into a process, and he has empowered us to approach things like this, where we see a wasteland before us. Our nation is a wasteland. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But not only is a nation a wasteland, listen, the church is often a microcosmic wasteland where we don't expect people to be delivered. We don't expect them to be healed. We don't expect them to overcome their addictions. We don't expect marriages to be put back together. We don't expect to operate in power. We just operate in the best of our human ability, which has been well-disciplined into a place of powerlessness. And so when we're looking at people that are sick, when we're looking at people that are demonized, when we look at people that are constantly, year after year, depressed, when we're seeing people that, that are impoverished, where people are prisoners of their own foolishness, and we, 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 we say churchy, cliquish things or cliche things over them, and yet we, 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 we've got to come to this place where we look at these things and we have a, a holy outrage to say, Lord, don't you heal these kind of things? Don't you deliver from these kind of things? And if we'll still get still and listen, we'll hear the Lord saying, yes, I do. And then when it's back on us, well, why aren't we seeing them? Because nobody's going after the balm that I have in Gilead. Because nobody wants to be the spiritual physician. Because everything is accessible, and you're so close to it, but you won't take it in your hands by faith and move towards the hurting, the sick, and the afflicted. When I think about healings from Jesus... I think about my own life, I think about what I read in scriptures, and I think about some of your lives. And I'm just going to make some bold, unapologetic statements. Jesus Christ heals and will heal every broken heart. He absolutely will heal every broken heart. Jesus Christ heals troubled minds. Ask the demoniac in the, the tombstones, the graveyard of Gadara, who was coming in there fierce, and nobody could chain him, and nobody can tame him. And he's mentioned in, I think, three of the four Gospels, and he was demonized to the core, and he ran around naked of all things, and terrorizing the villages. And then Jesus met him, and the next scene shows the demoniac of Gadara sitting at the feet of Jesus with his clothes on, and the Bible says he was in his right mind. We're given that extreme case in Scripture to let you know if Jesus did that with him, then he can do it with anybody in our lives now. Afflicted bodies, I believe that he is still Jehovah Rapha. He is the healer. The reason you say, well, Jeff, you just mentioned that your wife was injured in wreck, and you've told us that, that she's not been healed yet. Well, friends, what do you want us to do? You want us to quit? You want us to stop praying? You want us to stop pursuing the healer? 
I mean, I thank God today, a lady asked me right before the service, she goes, Amy's leg must be getting better. And I said, why? She goes, I've been here X amount of years. I've never seen her in boots before. She's singing in boots. And I thought to myself, wow, that's right. I've never even seen her. She hasn't been able to pull on a pair of boots. Listen, I, I think of Sandy Kamak, who just I'm, I'm brought back from the dead of all things. I'm, I'm thinking of people that are in our midst and anything as benign as a headache. We prayed right over here on Friday night for a, a man who is just in a distressful time in life. And he came up and he said, I've barely been able to walk for three days. He said, my back is killing me. And I had met with him right before the service. He's just in physical pain. And so he comes where he goes, please, will you get some people to pray over me? And Nick Bell comes out from the sound booth and a couple of others. And Danny came over. And I, I think John and Tiffany were over there. I can't remember. And I didn't have to do a thing. Just laid hands on him. And they just prayed over him for a few moments, calling on the healer. And at the end of the prayer, we step back. And he's going, wait a minute. He's like, no pain. No pain. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. About an hour later when we were leaving, he goes, yeah, man, I wasn't real sure if that was real or not. So I just came back and walked in the back of the sanctuary. We were having that uh, worship, regional worship night. He said, I just walked in the back of the sanctuary, kept waiting for the pain to come back and hoping it wouldn't. He's like, Jeff, it never did. He goes, God healed me. Now, you can either scoff at that and say, hmm, hmm, I don't know about all that. Well, friends, he does. Ask him. I'm just a mailman delivering a beautiful piece of mail to you this morning. He heals bodies. Don't you ever stop praying for healing. Don't do it. Friend, unless Jesus himself tells you, I'm not going to heal you, then the, I think the, the tenor of Scripture is to come to him, the balm of Gilead. He doesn't have the balm of Gilead. He is the balm of Gilead. He is the physician. And we bring to him our brokenness and our pains and our fractures. Shattered dreams and paralyzing fears and intimidating addictions, and terrifying battles, and giant opposition, all of those things that hurt us and wound us and shrink us. Jeremiah says there's a hope for our healing. I pray that this assembly and all assemblies in our area will experience a renaissance of the clearly New Testament work and gifting of healing in the body of Christ. If you're not for that, I pray for your heart because Jesus, listen, you know what Jesus did when he was on earth? He preached the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. He delivered people from the power of Satan and he healed people. And that's about all he did. He preached, he delivered from demonic powers and he healed people. And by the way, you can have a successful ministry in the 21st century and not do any of those three things. But that's the three things that the Son of God maximized. And yet I think because we're so afraid to be disappointed or so afraid that we might get it wrong or so tentative that there's an abracadabra kind of trick that you have to be really skilled and clever to be able to tap into. No, you're going to the Son of God, the Lord of compassion, and you're saying, Lord, I'm asking you to move on behalf of my body or my sister's body or my brother's body or even my enemy's body that they may experience the power of God that is undeniable. A hope for our healing. Let's go to the third question. Is there not a prophet? Is there not a balm in Gilead? And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse number 3, I want to talk to you about a bullseye for my blessing. If, if the first two didn't connect with you, here's one that should. King David said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. 
Now, some of you may not know this story. Saul was a wicked king who tried to hunt down the newly crowned king, King David. Before Saul died a very um, shameful death, his mission was to kill David before David could become king. And David honored Saul David's whole life. David refused to take matters into his hands. He waited on the Lord, and eventually God removed Saul, and, and David ascended to the throne of Israel. So now David is in the captain's seat. David's got all of the power. David rules the military. David's got all of the wealth. David's got all of the renown, all of the fame. Everybody knows that David is the man. And the custom in that day was this. When you ascend to the throne, you kill every member of your predecessor's family. You kill all of the men of the king that went before you because those men might be able to gain favor with the people and rise up and take your throne. So the common practice was when a king got to the throne, everybody from the former king's family took off in fear of their life. So David says, I want to know if there's anybody of Saul's house left, but not to kill him, to bless him. King David embodies generosity. And he asked the question, isn't there somebody I can bless? Isn't there somebody I can show the kindness of the Lord to? Now, my friends, you don't have to have nine feet of theology in your heart to be able to accomplish this. This is kingdom. I'm going to ask you a question. Who is currently the bullseye for your blessing? Who are you aiming at, not to destroy them, but to bless them? Who does God want to give favor with you? Who in your life is God saying, I'm going to use you in this person's life, and I want you to bless them. I want you to pour out on them. I want you to provide for them. I want you to take care of them any way that you can. Who is your bullseye? You say, Jeff, what does that look like? Well, think about what, what resources we have. We have time. God might say, who is it? that I want you to target to spend time with, the lonely, the forgotten. For, for those of us that are married, I think a lot of us, we forget around the holidays how, how deep the stabbing pain is at time for those that don't have a partner, don't have a spouse. Maybe it's a single person and God's saying, I want you to spend some of your time with that person. It could be the elderly. It could be a child without a parent. It could be somebody that would never expect you to want to spend time with them. Not only our time, but our words. Who can you bless? Who can you build up? Who can you edify with your words? You know, there's a shortage of edifying speech out there. There, there is a desert in the land. I mean, especially in the last 18 months, most of the speech have, that, that has been going across uh, our, our, our nation has been you know, like bursting in flames. It's been hot rhetoric. It's been cutting. It's been singeing kind of speech. Maybe God wants to raise you up as somebody who he can differentiate with. He can say, yeah, that's how they talk in the world. This is how my, my kids talk. And you bless people. You build them up. You encourage them. You strengthen them. By the way, you want to change your household? Just start right there. Whole lot less criticism. A whole lot more constructive speech will change the atmosphere of your home. Is there somebody out there that you can still bless? What about your, what about your money? And I'm going I'm to tell you something here, not for any other reason that I just want to let you know God does do this. There's three people in my life. Two of them live in state, one of them lives out of state. And I know for a fact, God has said, anytime you become aware of a need that that person has, I want you to meet it to the best of your ability. 
Now, it doesn't make me super spiritual because, listen, I can be as carnal as anybody. I've, I've got plenty of places money can go to. But when God starts highlighting three people over a period of time, it's amazing. Because the moment he highlights it, you're going to say, oh, I want to do that. I, that, I, that would actually please me, Lord. That would actually make me feel good to be used by you in their lives. And I want to tell you something. Most of us Christians aren't thinking along those lines. We, we, we do well to give to the church, and I hope you do. You covenanted to support the ministry here at Newbridge with your money. But I'm talking beyond that. I'm talking about people in your life where Uncle Sam doesn't give you a tax write-off for this kind of stuff I'm talking about. This is just straight-up benevolence and kindness. And all it takes is, is we don't need more opportunity. Again, we need more awareness of this. Who are these people? And I promise you this. Lord, I'm going to start praying today, Lord. I'm going to pray all week. Just show me, Lord, who do you want me to bless? I'm going to play, pray all week long, and on Friday I'll know, and the Lord will just say, you ain't got to pray till Friday. It's her. <laughs> bless her. Find out how you can help her. Find out how you can help him. And as much as you can, do it anonymously, and that'll only heighten the sense of the purity of it. But the point is this. David said, I, I, just help me find somebody. Zeba, my servant, help me find somebody. It's just in me to bless somebody. Jesus was not playing around when he said it's better to give than to receive. That is the one statement from Jesus I think the church least believes. I, I don't think we believe that. He actually said, hey, you're better off giving as much of it away as you can than keeping it. You say, well, Lord, my financial planner doesn't say that. And the Lord says, yeah, that's why he's not sitting on a throne in heaven. You see, the point being is this, it's not in our nature to do this, but King David was this emblematic of the spirit of Jesus Christ, and it's one king who wanted to bless. By the way, let's, let's go ahead and, and really put some meat on this illustration. That's the heart of Jesus to us. We're kind of like this Mephibosheth character, the son of Jonathan, who was living in the land of Lodabar, the house of no bread or no sufficiency. That's where Mephibosheth, the young man, was. And he was lame in his feet. He had been injured as a child, and he was in some form uh, afflicted and paralyzed and could never walk his own way into the presence of the king. But the king said, you go fetch him. Bring him to me, and I'm going to bless him. I'm going to take care of him. He's going to eat at my table. He's going to be a part of my family. He was the household of of an enemy. Now listen, Jonathan was the son of Saul, and Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. And David said, I don't care if it's my enemy or not. I'm good. I'm the king, and I'm going to bless him. And just in case you came in here wondering how Jesus feels about you, that's how he feels about you. That he's a king who loves to bless and he's sending out the Holy Spirit through the Word of God right now and calling some of you that have been out in the house of no bread, out in the faraway country, living in a distance. And he's saying, I still love you. I'm sending somebody to call your name so you'll know that the king is calling you to his palace to come and dine and feast. And I encourage us, let's emulate our king. Find somebody to bless. Not just because it's Christmas time. That's a wonderful time to start. But find somebody to bless because you're a kingdom man and you're a kingdom woman. 1 Samuel 17, 29. The fourth of the five, only two more to go, a call for our commitment. This is intense. This is probably my heartbeat more now than it was even years ago when I first got started. I've always been hungry for the mission of God. When I say always, since I was born again in 94, I just wanted to know what God was doing because I realized that's the only thing that really matters. God, what are you doing? Because anything else I put my life to or my hand to has an has a, um, expiration date. But Lord, you, your work goes on forever. So I want to be in on what you're doing. And so 
King David, again, using this great example, in a famous passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel 17, it's the David and Goliath chapter, David approaches the fight, and his brothers are all over him because David's ready to go down there and put a number on Goliath, and they're accusing David of being arrogant and prideful, and David just looks at his brothers who are all upset with him, and he says, what have I now done? And he looks at Goliath, and he says, is there not a cause Is there not a reason? Is there not a purpose standing right in front of us? Is there not an attack on the people of God is what David's asking. He's standing around a group of Hebrew soldiers and the king. This is before Saul died. And Goliath is down in the valley. He is a big old beast. He is just like a really ugly Middle Eastern redneck. I mean, he's like nine feet tall. He's just a massive ball of ugliness and rudeness, and he's cursing God, and he's cursing the Hebrews, and he's mocking them. He's been doing it day after day, week after week. And David's like the waiter. He's like the server. He's just showing up with some cheese and some, some beverages to refresh his brothers. And David comes up, and, and, and he hears Goliath spewing all of this awful talk about the God of Israel. And David's like, oh, he must, he must have just started this. I, let me step back. I'll wait for the soldiers to go take care of business. And 10 minutes later, David's looking around. He's like, oh, they're not going to do a thing. Nobody's incensed. Nobody's upset. Nobody's stirred. They're all stuck with lukewarm molasses running through their veins. And I just showed up, and I'm listening to this big, stinking, ugly Philistine defy my God. And so David says, if y'all ain't going to do nothing about it, let me out there. And his brothers are like, oh man, you're just a little punk. Go back to the sheep. And David's like, isn't there a reason for me to be stirred? Isn't there a cause that you should be stirred up? I actually tarried over this quite a while this morning. And at the risk of maybe numbing some of you, I'm just going to read what I I wrote down because I I think that we need to answer this question in 21st century United States of America in this, for lack of a better word, very strange season that we find ourselves in. So bear with me. Is there not a cause when our nation is being rocked by division and violence and racism and fear and hate and threats and manipulation and injustice and lovelessness, is there not a cause When selfish lust is abounding, while sacrificial love is declining, when neither the elderly nor the unborn any longer have a voice, when freedom of gender is now a growing list of choices, while freedom of religion is a shrinking list of liberties, is there not a cause for the church? When the American church is the wealthiest of any segment of the church in our history as the church, yet our giving to advance the kingdom is otherwise spent with little restraint on our personal pursuits, our favorite possessions, our hobbies, and our entertainment, is there not a cause? When churches are being built on business models which produce much weekly activity but little lasting fruit, when Christians can join with each other for 50 weekly Bible studies but less than 1% of Christians engage in sharing the gospel with unbelievers, isn't there a cause? When those lost in the emptiness of their sexual bondage, plundering alcohol, ravaging drug abuse, and generational hopelessness passed down to them by their parents and their parents' parents, is there not a cause? When the Holy Spirit has become a doctrine to be debated rather than divine God to be cherished, pursued, and submitted unto, is there not a cause? 
when there's a growing sense of the approaching end of the age and pulpits are filled with religious salesmen who insist to all of us that everything is well in the world. And yet, while very few voices are crying out for repentance toward God in order to free the, flee the wrath that is to come, is there not a cause? When the undeniable activity of Satan and his demons is increasing in intensity and frequency with unparalleled displays of evil and depravity, with Muslim terrorists torturing and slaughtering Christians and Jews, men, women, and children all across the globe, with upwards of 60 million abortions of American babies since 1973, with a systemic inequality for minorities by an American government that continually promises much but delivers little to them, with a social war between the races and the socioeconomic class in our country, whose very name contains the word united, isn't there a cause? With a gospel that finds people and awakens people and justifies people before a holy God, a gospel that raises people from spiritual death and eventually physical death, a gospel that transforms people into the likeness of King Jesus and offers people a destiny infused with divine purpose, and it connects people into an eternal family of brothers and sisters, the gospel that unifies people of different ages and races, nationalities, incomes, educations, and pedigrees, a gospel which radically blesses people, blesses them now and secures them eternally, forever in the presence of the Savior. Is there not a cause? Friends, you and I have the answer. We don't only have the theological answer, we have the power. And if I can heighten it a little bit, we have the calling. We have the commission. And I don't know what your cause is, and I speak especially to those of you who are younger, who are still defining what your cause is, and still determining for whom and why you're going to live. And by the way, everybody's living for something. And when we think about this, and I say to myself, are we like the army of Israel? When the enemy is standing in the valley, laughing and taunting and screaming as if he's won, and he is defeated. Satan is defeated. This world is under the feet of Jesus. The demons ought to be running from us and going to get counseling themselves. That is the reality. And we stand with our hands shoved in our pockets and our feet shuffling. Sing us a tune. Pipe to us in the marketplace, preacher. And we think to ourselves, Goliath is roaring. Somebody ought to go down and cut his head off. That'll bless you, right? See, I'm just wondering, who's it going to be? Here am I, Lord. Send me. What about you? The last question. In Micah 4.9, and this is actually the question that launched all these other questions. This is the first one that the Holy Spirit planted like a deep seed in my heart that I couldn't get away from for two weeks. Micah 4, 9. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Why do you now cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Remember, the answer to these questions for us, yes, there's a prophet of the Lord, many of them. Yes, there's a balm in Gilead. Yes, there's somebody that we can bless. Yes, there is a cause, and the yes above all yeses, yes, there's a king in you. 
And the question is asked to ancient Israel and Micah the prophet. It's coming at a time where the, 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 the historicity, the, the, the longevity of the kingships of Israel has been broken and captivity is coming. And when Micah is asking the question, the answer was no. We don't have a king ruling. We don't have a king reigning. And therefore, we are crying aloud. And the, 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 the context there is a woman screaming in anguish in the last throes of birth in primitive Israel where the, there was no anesthesia, there was no help for recovery. So many women died in painful childbirth. And, and Micah paints the scene of that nationally. And, and he's saying, you're, you're crying out with that scream of pain, that scream of despair, that scream of something coming forth that is agonizing you. And then we take that, that question and we launch it to 21st century America. We find ourselves, if we're not tempted, church, whining, moaning, whimpering, complaining, crying, grumbling. Our favorite song is, woe is me. And we like to sing it in a minor chord. We, 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 we find ourselves finding everything that's wrong. And we look around and we see ISIS. And we see Islamic extremism. And we see secular humanism, which may be much more of a threat to our culture than Islam is right now. And we see all that is coming against the church. And we, we find ourselves drawn to this place of a pathetic display of who we are. So instead of praying and then moving, we protest. We write online posts about how evil the other side of the aisle is. And we feel justified in the cozy little cocoon of our laptop or our tablet. And we, we hit send and we think, oh, I have done the, service of the kingdom a great service. I think there's a little more expectation on us. So the question is this. While we're tempted to walk in defeat, we're tempted to give in to despair. And we're tempted to talk about all that it's wrong. And we're tempted to magnify Goliath in the, in the valley instead of defeating Goliath in the valley. I asked the question that Micah asked as we complain, as we whine, as we cry, as we're tempted to slip into selfishness, as we're tempted to look at the world and make it all about us and how we want things and how we like things and how things need to be according to my way of doing things. I'm going to ask you the same question that, that God asked me when I get into a rut like that. Jeff, do you not have a king living in you? Is there not a king in you, son? Don't you have the sovereign son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, living on the inside of you? We think about this, friends, as if we are powerless an emasculated group of, of, of the spiritual eunuchs that have no potency in the kingdom. And then God looks at us, and he is so gracious and so merciful. And he says, I'm going to let you go ahead and have your little cry. And I'm going to cozy up to you. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to wipe your spiritual nose. I'm going to dry your spiritual tears. And then I'm going to look you square in the eye. And I'm going to ask you, now then, do you have a king living in you or not? And church, it is time that not just a loud little Irishman in the pulpit on a Sunday, but all of us as the body of Christ start looking at each other. And in order to build one, each other, one another up, 
in order to motivate and provoke one another unto love and good works as we're commanded to do, that we look at each other. And in times of criticism and in times of moaning, in times of groaning, in times of pointing out how wrong everything is, just saddle up next to your brother and sister, elbow them gently in the rib and say, hey, make up your mind right now. You got a king in you or not? So if we've got a king in us, friends, that means we have power in us. It means we have authority in us. It means we have dominion in us. It means we have life in us. That means we have a rulership and a reigning in us. And that means we can take, not, let's not amen the theology of that power, authority, and dominion in us. Let's use it, amen. Let's come up against what is wrong. Worship team, come on up here because I'm about to roll and I want you to roll with me. Let's come to this place where we say, I am sick of being defeated. I am sick of my own excuses. I'm sick of how just trivial things can knock me off course and keep me off course. We've got to get sick of the things that so easily cause us spiritual kingdom amnesia. We forget, oh yeah, I got a king in me. See, my friend, I think one of my jobs before Jesus takes me home to use whatever resources, ability, and time I have to call out the king in you. He is the king. But I want to tell you, Word of God tells us that he's made us a kingdom of priests. That means you have some ruling and reigning authority too. And you, you just need every now and then somebody to remind you that whatever is coming up against you, whatever is slapping you around, that it is not, it might be greater than you in the natural. It might be greater than you in your flesh. It might be greater than you in a moment of weakness, but it is not greater than you in the grand scope of things that you are an overcomer, you are a conqueror, you are one who is a hyper-conqueror in Jesus Christ. And that means at the time and the place where you start expecting the Lord, the King in you, to manifest blessing and victory and breakthrough and power, that you will begin to walk in it. You, it won't happen if you don't want it. It will likely will not happen if you don't pursue it. Because when we start living like this, the enemy says, whoa, 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 whoa. You ain't going anywhere. I've had you wrapped up in your own negativity. You've been simmering in your own spiritual bile a long time. I don't want you getting sweet. I've got you right where I want. I've got you stewing in your sourness. And you got to look at him sometimes. You got to say, yeah, it's not going to work anymore because somebody told me I had a king in me. Somebody told me I was triumphant. Somebody told me I was an overcomer. Somebody told me I didn't have to live in the house of no bread.